In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, here as always with my executive producer, co-host, and hand of the podcast king, Mike Graham. I would actually be an excellent hand of the podcast king because of my intimate knowledge of the way podcasts work inside and out. Uh, from promotion to production to uh, being an excellent on-air personality. I accept the position. Thank you. Yeah, good. You didn't have a choice. Just like Tyrion, I I don't care if you want the job or not. I'm giving it to you. Okay. All right. Well, I take it, so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, uh, hints aside, obviously, this is a big episode for us, Mike. We are covering Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, Game of Thrones, and it's actually like I'm kind of nervous because this is humongous. Yeah, it's a beast. Yeah, this is definitely the biggest thing we've done. So, so you know, before we get into the biggest thing we've done, why not just cover some mental health news? Because this episode's (laughs) going to be two hours anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take our mind (laughs) off of it real quick so we can kind of relax and get the nerves, the nerves out. Yeah, before we go. Yeah, we're just going to talk. Our uh, windpipes. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Get our voices all nice and velvety. So, Mike, you you shared an article with me that was um, being passed around this week, uh, noting the rising rate of suicide and problems that a lot of people and families are experiencing in getting mental health coverage. Yeah, I did. I I saw that in Bloomberg, and it was actually, uh, I'm a big Redditor, and it went across the front page twice. And I'm not normally like the the big one between us two to find news articles. But when I see something go across like Reddit front page, um, that means a lot of people are talking about it. So I figured, yeah, we should at least look at it. Yeah. And I think I think it's a good timing because mental health is at the forefront of everyone's mind. It is still Mental Health Awareness Month. Yes, it is. And it's a good time for us to be talking about this because health insurance and insurance in general is also in the news a lot. People are talking about things like universal health care and, um, you know, people still trying to repeal Obamacare and Medicare for all, all these different kinds of things. So it's it's a good opportunity for us to talk about the problems that exist with the system. Actually, so when I read the article, like the article is based around the fact that people seeking mental health care coverage are having problems getting it. and Uh, insurance companies actually actively trying to figure out ways not to pay out for mental health care coverage. Two reactions happened to me when I read this. There's always the one, well, yeah, of course, it's insurance, right? They're going to do that anywhere. And like, how dare they for something like this? You know, it's just mental health is already treated as something that doesn't count, you know, as it is. And then, yeah, so that kind of gets you right there. But the other strange reaction I had was uh, I've never personally had any trouble having anything covered with the insurances I've been on. 
Like well, I've had no. I'm glad no, to hear that. Yeah. Right, and, and so there's a there's a part of me that like felt guilty, because it's like what's going on for other people out there, and I I wondered like what you were seeing because you see people in all walks of life, and it's not like I've had great insurance or anything, you know, and it's not like I'm some rich guy or anything like that, you know. It's like I DoorDash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But either way, it's just it kind of it kind of blew me away a little bit. Yeah. So I have been on the I guess front lines of this problem. I, I've been a person that has to advocate for patients to get their mental health treatment covered or their addiction treatment covered. And that can be, a, a, I guess, a really surprising fight. You wouldn't think that you'd have to, you know, like go to war with insurance companies to get an extra day or extra couple of days for people in you know, intensive outpatient or inpatient treatment, but but that right. is the case. So just to read uh, what I thought was the most troubling part of the article was, um, so it start it starts by talking about this this mother who lost her son when he was essentially denied coverage for addiction treatment, came home early, and then ended up overdosing and unfortunately dying. Oh yeah. So yeah. she joined this class action lawsuit against United Behavioral Healthcare, which is uh, one of the main providers of health insurance in February of 2016. And in March of this year, which tells you how long these suits go on, a judge found United Behavioral Health liable for breaching fiduciary duty and denying benefits, saying the insurer considered its bottom line as much or more than the well-being of its members in developing coverage guidelines. So to, to clarify, basically, they put more priority on making sure they were making money. Yeah then and making sure that their members got the appropriate level of care or the, you know, sufficient care. You know, it's just crazy to think about. And we know that that's what insurance companies do like across the board. But, you know, when it hits home like this, you, you just go, ugh, I can't believe it. And and then I was actually thinking while you were talking there about how I was saying, you know, I've never had these struggles and I haven't. But I do remember when I was in an outpatient program with like a locally sourced place. Yeah. They, somebody there was employed to do exactly what you're just talking about was to go to war yes. over, over these issues. And I, I remember being like by one of these offices or whatever. And like, that's what the lady did all day is she's like arguing with people on the phone. Yeah. So it's just like, thank you for doing that. But yeah. And it's sad that that is a job essentially like insurance case manager needs its own job. You know, without revealing too much of my political stance, I, I, I'm a big advocate for, you know, we had Obamacare. Now that's being um, pushed against, you know, and now you see some of the people running for president or advocating things like universal health care and Medicare for all. And one of the reasons I support that is exactly for this reason, that if you centralize health care treatment, we don't have companies pushing for profit, essentially, um, for insurance. So profit can't be considered over the needs of uh, people's health care because everything would be centralized and you'd have some standards of practice and there would be no, um, you know, CEO trying to hit his bonus, essentially. It would just yeah. be granted it's the government and we don't necessarily trust the government in all things, but even just a centralized <laughs> uh, opportunity to say, OK, here are the standards for care, you know, and here's how we're going to make everything work. You know, and granted, Medicare is not perfect. But, you know, just the, you know, universal coverage aspects and the recognizing mental health care as a, a broader issue, I think, would, would do a lot of good for a lot of people. 
Absolutely. And just so everyone knows, uh, Ryan's untrust of the government comes from his ska punk days. That's right. I, I was a big... <laughs> uh, well, well, you joke, but um, uh, several summers in a row, I went to Warp Tour, which was basically all ska punk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. I was there. I was there too. I uh, had a it- little faux hawk and, you know, yeah. Oh man, I want pictures. <laughs> <laughs> with that being said, Mike, we have a lot to get through with yeah, Game of Thrones, yeah. so let's get to it. Until today. Until today. Varys was right. I was wrong. It was vanity to think I could guide her. Our queen's nature is fire and blood. You think our house words are stamped on our bodies when we're born, and that's who we are? Ah, then I'd be fire and blood too. She's not her father, no more than your Tywin Lannister. My father was an evil man. My sister was an evil woman. Pile up all the bodies of all the people they ever killed. There still won't be half as many as our beautiful queen slaughtered in a single day. She left her no choice. The moment the gates fell, the battle was over. She saw her friend beheaded. She saw her dragon shot out of the sky. And she burned down a city for it. Ah, it's easy to judge when you're standing far from the battlefield. Would you have done it? What? You've been up there on a dragon's back. You've had that power. Would you have burned the city down? I don't know. Yes, you do. You won't say, because you don't want to betray her. But you know. Exterior. Data. Streets of King's Landing. In the wake of the dragon's fiery destruction to the framework of King's Landing, and the near-complete obliteration of the innocent people within its boundaries, the streets lay quiet. Ash falls from the sky like a November snow, almost hiding the frightening scene of roasted women, men, and children, and encasing their scorched remains frozen in time, as if they were statues chiseled in stone. The silence is deafening. How could anyone survive the apocalyptic firestorm of the world's largest and mightiest dragon? Did you get a screenplay for for Game of Thrones? Ryan? Okay, hold on a second. Oh, sorry, sorry, keep going. You're doing great. Okay, it's almost, I'm, just a second. I'm almost there. All right. All hope is lost. The Seven Kingdoms will fall to the reign of the last Targaryen, the Mad Queen. But wait. There is movement in the wake. A young woman stumbles from the one building that didn't collapse. She is hurt, but breathing. Is this fan fiction? No, it's my... Hold on. I'm going to... Yeah, no, okay. I'm going to have to restart. We're going to have to start over. No, it's it's my tale about the last couple episodes. I know. I'm interrupting you because it's ridiculous. Okay, well, can I finish? Okay, keep going. She is hurt, but breathing, rising from her ashen tomb unbelievably, is Arya Stark. <coughs> is Arya Stark, the faceless woman. Of the hundreds of thousands of people lying motionless in the streets, she miraculously spots a woman and child for whom she tried to save, 
during the onslaught of fire and brimstone. For a moment, Mike, I got she... Are we just are we subjecting our listeners to a, a retelling of the final episode? I don't understand what we're doing. I well, I'm yes. I wrote out a. Th okay, so there isn't a synopsis for the entire like Game of Thrones, right? As a whole, okay. So I guess, but so I'm just like my Maybe like my a tweet length version. I mean, we can stop. Like boy meets dog, boy gets separated from dog, boy reunites with dog. Okay. I mean, I can. Do you want me to keep going? Yes or no? No, I think we're good. I think the, the people know what happens. This is the most popular television show in the last 10 years. Okay. Area goes on to uh, not kill. I'm so sorry. We haven't talked about anything <laughs> mental health related yet. We're, we're 15 minutes into the episode already. Okay. Okay. I'm done. Synopsis is over. Man. All right. Well, for those of you still with us, thank you so much. I just, if any, okay. So we had to stop, but if anybody is interested in uh, hearing the rest of that, I will record that uh, in my vocal booth uh, that doesn't exist. And I'll send you a copy uh, layered with music. It'll be fantastic. And, and for those of you not interested in that, don't worry. I've read it all and it's, it's not worth your time. Oh my God. But you're good, Mike. You're doing great. You, okay. You, you're, right. a, you're a great hand of the podcast king. All right. Um, so obviously we're not going to talk about the whole eight season length long Game of Thrones because we frankly just don't have the time. There are podcasts more equipped to do that. We're happy to recommend some at the end. But basically, we wanted to try to cover some aspect of the mental health issues that come up in the show, right? Yeah. And I, I, I thought the best way to do that was to kind of hone in on the different houses, the different families, and yeah. the, the sort of mental health issues that are born out of each family's you know, either house words or the expectations put on them, you know, the, the, the sort of um, uh, traditions and, and history of each family and how that impacts a lot of these characters throughout the series. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of the best way to do it, because if like this would be impossible if we didn't have some sort of like organized way to do right. this. So we're going to be organized. There's like yes. 70 characters. Right. Um, but yeah, when you when you came to me and said, hey, let's look at this from a family sort of, I guess, dynamic way, uh, I immediately was like, okay, I'm just going to kind of sit back and can you start talking at me? <laughs> I'm going to. I don't, know. <laughs> yeah, it's I don't okay. know a lot about that stuff. <laughs> well, right. So because I think we could sit here and we could, you know, psychoanalyze every character. Or we could look at personality disorders and we could look at, you know, interpersonal relationships. And we, we, we may do that here and there. But really for me, I've shared that I work in Princeton. People won't be surprised to hear that there are a lot of uh, family laden pressures on not just children, but young adults and even adults to a certain extent. Oh, for sure. So that when I when I watch Game of Thrones and I notice these like family pressures, fire and blood, winter is coming, we're going to go through all the different house words. It just strikes me that implicit in every one of these like mottos is its own sort of expectation of how you're supposed to be and if you're not that what that means so we're going to go through it i think it's it's going to be interesting hopefully to people and i know the takeaways um that we'll we'll arrive at as a result sure and obviously crazy spoilers are you know if you yeah. haven't watched it for whatever reason or not a fan or whatever but yeah so we're going to talk about anything that we can and so just be prepared for that yes 
we're going to work our way from like the outside houses okay. into the central houses. I think that's probably the easiest way to go. So we'll finish with, you know, the main houses, you know, Stark, Targaryen, Baratheon, Lannister. Okay. Um, but we'll work our way, at least initially, with some of the outside ones on the periphery. Okay. Uh, who do you want to start with, Ryan? So I actually like to start with House Tully, Lords Over the Riverlands. Every time he would leave for the capital or fight in a campaign, I'd see him off. Wait for me, little cat, he'd say. Wait for me. And I'll come back to you. And I would sit at this window every day when the sun came up, waiting. I wonder... How many times did Bran or Rickon stare across the moors of Winterfell, waiting for me to return? I will never see them again. House Tully. So, so House Tully, lords over the Riverlands, and uh, the three main characters of House Tully, I should say four, you know, we get Catelyn, who's Catelyn Stark, uh, wife of Ned Stark. We have Edmure Tully, who, uh, Catelyn's brother, and uh, famous in the most, in the last episode for just attempting to try to make himself king. Yeah. You know, I'm a veteran, <laughs> I'm a veteran, I'm this, I'm that. <laughs> And he had a good history. It, yeah, sure. Yeah. But his niece, you know, of all people is like, uncle, please sit, which I just loved. <laughs> and I'm sure he's going to have some mental health issues going back to, to House Tully. And then we have Lysa, not Lysa, Lysa Tully becomes Lysa Aaron, Lord, or, or I should say Queen, I guess, technically of yeah, the Vale, right? Yeah. She's her own sack of potatoes right there. She is. So we're not going to get into individual characters. I really just want to talk about families. And the last Tully character that we meet over the course of the show is uh, the Blackfish. The Blackfish? The Blackfish, yeah. Um, Catelyn and Edmure's uncle. He's like the guy, the, the fa my favorite scene is when House Tully is doing like a funeral and they put the guy in the boat and they're sending him down the boat. And Edmure, Catelyn's brother, is supposed to shoot a flaming arrow into the boat to light the pyre and, and right, send right. the person down the river, right? And he shoots like three arrows in succession, all missing. Yeah, and then the, yeah. the blackfish takes his bow and arrow away from him, pulls one arrow really far back, lets go, doesn't even watch it land in the boat, just shoves the bow and arrow back into Edmure's chest <laughs> um, and walks off. And okay. it's like, this is the family we're dealing with. So, so House Tully's house words are family, duty, honor. And... I think this family does a pretty good job of sort of living into that. We'll call it a motto. Each family has a sort of motto, right? Yeah. Catelyn for sure. Be kind but, of one of these things they put on like their chest or armor yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, suit of armor. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, Mike, with each of these houses, I think what I want to talk about is, you know, with the sort of house words and what we know about the family, you know, the expectations on, let's say, each generation. So in this, in, in House Tully, we don't have, um, we, we sort of have grandchildren, but they're really stark. So we're going to talk about them later. So we have Catelyn, Edmure, and Lysa, and the house words being family, duty, honor. Family, duty, honor. Yeah. Okay. So in the spectrum of the houses of Game of Thrones, this is like a pretty neutral, like positively framed family sure. motto, right? This is like the suburbs. Yeah. Just like, you know, be loyal to your family, do your duty, 
And and as long as you're doing that, you're good. Right. You know, right? live moral, morally, have a moral compass. Yeah. Be a decent, average person. Yes. Now, where that starts to run into trouble for these characters is when the sense of duty and loyalty and family, you know, Game of Thrones, the universe of Westeros <laughs> is a harsh place. Yeah. And when and when you put <laughs> things like duty or honor over, let's just say, survival or wise war tactics, you can get yourself into trouble. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And we see this. Yeah. And we see this on multiple occasions. Catelyn and and no one would fault her for this, but you know is mostly concerned about the the fate and survival of her children. So in in the earlier seasons, she uh, sets free the Kingslayer. She sets free Jaime Lannister, with the hope being that her daughters will be safe in King's Landing. So again, putting family first. And again, no one would would blame her for this, but this no. ends up, you know, kind of backfiring, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I'm sitting here thinking like. So, you know, family duty honor, and we're talking about this family operating in this insane world, Westeros going on. But like in the real world, like those those things seem pretty um pretty good things to go off of. Absolutely. So so taking ourselves out of Westeros in the real world, if your if your family motto was family duty honor, that it's would excellent. be pretty good. <laughs> it's an excellent thing to think about and, and go on. And if we put it in the in the spectrum of mental health, you know, relying on your family for for social support, having some sense of of duty or responsibility can be a really healthy thing to have. Honor is just kind of this like general thing, just like be honorable. Okay, you could interpret right. that in a lot of different ways. But for sure, you know, this family motto, family words is pretty positive. So I like to start at a nice positive note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, agreed. And you know, it, like realistically, Catelyn, we we know what happens to her, right? We do. And these these sort of mottos, I guess, get her into the situation. But realistically, if you think about it, those morals that she was set up with uh, made her a great, made her a good person that would put herself in that position for her yes. family. And, and I couldn't think of anything more honorable, you know? So, yes. So the last thing with with them that I really want to touch on is that, you know, each of them sort of make decisions and and that, you know, in the real world, they might be rewarded for, you know, essentially putting family first. But in the world of Game of Thrones, you know, they keep kind of getting tripped up. Edmure essentially gives up his castle so Jamie Lannister won't murder his child, right, or murder his wife. Man, they really held true to those values. They did. And, and, and again, I want to be clear, we are, we are not disparaging that. These are great values to have. But in the world that they lived in, these values... Um, they got them steamrolled. Got them steamrolled, for sure. And the one criticism of Catelyn is, yes, she is strong on family duty honor. But as a result of that, she treats Jon Snow pretty harshly. That's true. Yeah, she does. I forgot about that. So because, yeah, because she's so strong on family, you know, her assumption, and, and she doesn't know the truth, obviously, but she's under the assumption that John is a, a bastard son of Ned. So Ned has yeah. broken that sort of family bond. And as a result, she treats John like a bastard. You know, she doesn't let him sit at the table. She treats John like a bastard. Yeah. 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 So just, it's, it's sad huh. to watch that. And, and we're going to talk about John as we get into some of the other families, but yeah, it's tough to watch. So not to get like super like sci psychology on that's this, okay. yep. psychological, uh, which I guess that's what we do, but. <laughs> it is. But 
or so Ned breaks that like circle of trust for her, right? Those those words, family, duty, and honor, by or so she thinks, and by and John Snow's the bastard, and I mean this is what she's aware of, but instead of treating Ned that way forever, she treats John that way, and to me that doesn't make a lot of sense. He's just a child, you know. He had nothing to do with that, even if it were true, right? And I just yeah, I was just thinking like. People that do kind of join arm in arm so tightly with their family and there's little room for outsiders. Yeah, it's not that that she thinks that they're better. It's that, you know, John is a representation of what she, again, is under the assumption that Ned has done. Mm -hmm. Not just to the family, but to her, right? Yeah. So, So it's tough. But, you know, while we're here, why don't we transition into the next house? All right. Who are we doing? So, um, again, staying on sort of the edges, we're going to jump to sort of the other side of a family tree and we're going to go House Baratheon. And I declare upon the honor of my house that my beloved brother Robert left. It wasn't my beloved brother. I didn't love him. He didn't love me. A harmless courtesy of yours. A lie. Take it out. When Ed had start learnt the truth, he told only me. I'll not make the same mistake. Send copies of that letter to every corner of the realm from the arbor to the wall. Time has come to choose. Let no man claim ignorance as an excuse. House Baratheon. So the main children that we interact with over the course of Game of Thrones are King Robert, who sadly dies in season one. Right. Stannis, who... I guess was not the prince who was promised or, or whatever people thought he was. <laughs> the Lord of Light was wrong. Lord of Light, yeah. He, he ends up uh, dying around what, season six, five, six, seven, and that seven, range? I think it was seven. seven, yeah. And then Renly, another sad death, I think also season one. I don't even remember Renly. Renly was stabbed by the shadow monster, by, by Stannis's uh, shadow baby. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Totally remember that now. Um, and of course, Stannis's daughter, Shireen, who. Sadly, um, oh man, was uh, killed for the Lord of Light to bestow blessings upon them. I guess I do yeah. want to say that Robert Baratheon. Yes, I I also like to call him the Ghost of Christmas Present. Oh, because he kind of looks like the yeah. one from like <laughs> yeah, I could go with that yeah for sure. So yeah, so House Baratheon, their house words or the house motto is "Ours is the Fury." Hmm. Ours is the Fury. Mike, what is your gut reaction to Ours is the Fury? Oh, I just thought, uh, sounds like bad news. I mean, if you grew up in a house and like above your kitchen sink is just like Ours is the Fury. <laughs> it would be like, I don't know, like, it doesn't matter what you do. You like make a mess if you have to, but like get where you're going no matter what. Right. Yeah. This this sense of entitlement that it's okay to act out of rage or fury if it's in the the spirit of sort of getting what you want or advancing the family. Yeah. And we see, you know, with these three brothers in particularly, they just have no sense of consequence or or, or responsibility. They will kill each other if it means getting ahead. Absolutely. Uh, especially with Stannis. Yeah. Like you, you see that with Rinley and obviously with Robert, 
uh, Robert being just like that drunken king who he's already made his place and he just doesn't even care about the people anymore at that point. But, you know, once he passes and Stannis is trying to take the throne, he like progressively, well, he starts off really bad, right? Yeah. But then he like progressively, and you couldn't expect it, gets worse. You know, he 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 doesn't care how he's going to do it. He's going to go... Uh, believe in this uh, Lord of Light with this Red Witch, whether or not he actually believes in it or not. And then, uh, you know, take down armies, get people killed. And then, you know, in his final act of doing anything that he can to get whatever he wants any way he can, he has his daughter, Shireen, burned at the stake or he lets it happen and stands there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely just kind of uh, the ends justify the means. Yeah, but so so to take a step back, let's picture these three brothers growing up, right? I don't know if yeah. this is talked about in any of the books, but it's it's a fascinating hypothetical for me as a therapist, obviously, because we have these three brothers, and can't you just see them like beating the crap out of each other, playing like King of the Hill or wrestling? Or, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And with with no sense of consequence, you know, if they, you know, if if they have their knives out, if somebody gets stabbed, it's just like well. Renly was not giving me what I wanted, so I stabbed him. Like, okay. And and that's what they do as adults. Stannis had no qualms about murdering his youngest brother just to get ahead. He had no qualms. Well, he had some qualms, I guess. He had some guilt about (laughs) putting his daughter to the stake. But he did it. Do you think money has anything to do with this? No, this all feels like power. Honestly, it all feels like... um, and again, I don't I don't know a lot about their like family tree going back beyond Robert Stannis, but but what I do know is is extremely evident is that each of these men is obsessed with power. They consistently proclaim themselves as, you know, protector of the realm and lord of the kingdoms and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, so it's like they have no point of view from any sort of other status of perspective. Right. All they want is all they want is the crown and they don't care what they have to do to get it. Right. And I was just thinking of like in the the real world, like seeing families that that are sort of that way where there are people all around them. But it's almost like a a divided sea in their Mm -hmm. minds um, that they are the only ones that are supposed to be, you know, going where they're going. Yeah. And everyone else is just like this actor and a screenplay around them. Sure. And if we're talking family dynamics at all, it's just like how did like how does that even begin? I mean, does is that begin with like power and money and that kind of stuff? Or is that just So it's interesting. I've, I've, I, yeah, I've worked with families who have the like three young boys all within a couple of years of each other. And I mean we could get into like male stereotypes and all that kind of stuff, but it does for a lot of reasons, create this uh, this competition mindset at a very young age. I'm remembering one patient in particular, a um, middle boy of three, so I guess he'd be Stannis in this in this scenario. <laughs> Does it make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, and it's like the attention, you know, the boy, each of the boys only gets attention when they act out, when they do something bad, quote-unquote bad, you know, when they hit one of their brothers, when they scream when they're acting out in school and the and the uh-huh. mom or dad gets called out. And this is such a, a difficult family dynamic for a therapist because 
it's not necessarily the case that my patient is depressed or, or has ADHD or anything. It's just the family dynamic is rewarding attention-seeking behavior. Absolutely. Like, as soon as you said that, I thought, well, that starts with parenting. Yeah, and yeah, for sure. Because, it, it, and this is not to disparage anybody who may no, be no, like not at all. Yeah. dealing with that because, okay, you have three kids, like giving them the perfectly equal amount of attention is like next to impossible. Yes. Right. And man, three boys on top yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. Not that like boys are any harder than girls to raise or anything like that, but like boys are, oh my gosh, like the energy levels are insane. Yeah, little rage monsters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah. Especially that middle child, you know, there's a middle right. child syndrome. Well, right. So we have Stannis and he, he is kind of middle child syndrome. You know, he's being told that he's the chosen one of the Lord of Light. So of course he's going to do everything he can to seek out and to validate that feeling of like, oh. yes, I am the chosen one. Like, finally, somebody gets me for how I see myself. Yeah, and it makes so much sense, too. And because, he doesn't stop, yeah. Because he doesn't kill Robert, Correct. right? He's the older brother, right? Correct, yes. Who he probably has been either scared of or revered his whole life. Sure. And and then there's the the younger brother who he probably sees as an annoyance or the or the one that took away his spotlight. Mm-hmm. You know, so he had no problem yeah. offing right. Rinley. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's House Baratheon, and, and that's a, a difficult family structure. But, you know, maybe don't use fury in, in your house words otherwise, especially with three <laughs> boys. <laughs> All right. So should we move on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So so now we're going to move towards the big three, that being Stark, Targaryen, Lannister. All right. Which one first? So I'm going to take Lannister first. Your Grace, His Holiness the High Septon wishes to speak with you at the Great Sept of Baelor. His Holiness the High Septon is welcome to see me here in the Red Keep. Your Grace, this is not a request. It is a request, Cousin Lancel. You are asking me for something I'm refusing. The High Septon commands you. Are you sure you want to refuse him? He promised me I could stay in the Red Keep until my trial. He made no such promises. If you refuse to come of your own free Get will. Out. Move aside, sir. Order your man to step aside, or there will be violence. Lannister. So House Lannister has like the common phrase of a Lannister always pays their debts. That's not actually their house motto, although I, we will reference it. Yeah. So the house motto is actually hear me roar. Oh, no, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Which which again, very attention seeking, you know, and all three of these children fought for the attention, especially of their father. Obviously, the mother died in, in childbirth with Tyrion, so mother wasn't around. But for sure, all of these children fought for the attention, affection, and validation of their father. Yeah, absolutely. Like, even when they hated him the most, they would do anything he asked, up to the point where one of them just had to kill him to make it stop. Yes, yes. Obviously, you know, Jamie and Cersei uh, have a relationship, and that, 
you know, was a secret from their father because they knew he would be so upset if he knew the truth. And obviously, eventually they tell him, but not for a long time. I think most people were going to be upset about that one. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> but which so, is it's, yeah. it's funny. It's funny to think about, and I don't know if they know this in this fake middle age world, but you know, Cersei hates Tyrion for being a dwarf, but she has incestual children with Jaime, and the chances of them being, you know, something going wrong is just been upped. Yeah. So there's a there's a little bit of hypocrisy going on there with Cersei. <laughs> No question. But Mike, I don't know if this is true for your kids. It's certainly true for my daughter. Thinking about the the house motto, hear me roar. It just sounds like the kind of thing a toddler would say if a parent's not paying attention to them. Like, dad, are you listening to me? Like, dad, look at look what I'm doing. Dad, pay attention to me. Hear me roar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I and that dynamic is obviously carried by these kids throughout their adulthood. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, to the point where even after it, it's no longer a like trying to get the love of their father, it, like once he's gone, like that roar is just unleashed, especially with Cersei. Oh, yeah. Like, and she now super vindictive and super yeah, she murderous. Does, <laughs> she's not roaring at Tywin anymore. Now she's roaring at like the land. Everyone, anyone, anyone that's in her way. Yes. So, so we have the three children, uh, Jane, yep. Cersei, and Tyrion. We can kind of see how they interact with each other, but like Tyrion is definitely ostracized by Cersei. You know, Jamie does love him, but he lets that happen. Like, are we looking at another middle child, young child, you know, the three child thing happening here? Or is there like something different going on with these kids? I think it's a little bit different, especially because Jamie and Cersei are twins. You know, obviously that's a special bond. And and as a result, you know, it's this very, very much this distinct Jamie and Cersei versus Tyrion. Even if Tyrion and Jamie are, are close, it's not nearly the same relationship that Jamie and Cersei have. Yeah. So the the dynamic at play, and I, I want to, we'll talk about Joffrey and, and Marcella and Tom in, in a little bit as well, you know, is really, as I said before, this one of, you know, please pay attention to me. Look at the sort of like attention seeking behaviors that each child has. Jamie is going to be a knight and is going to, you know, he's a king's guard and then he becomes a king's slayer and he, you know, protects the children and he does all these things. Very much fulfilling Tywin's sort of like um, warmongering status, right? Yeah, yeah. And who, and who he still gets no, like, he doesn't ever get like the pat on the back for it. He's always right. just like, yeah, you're supposed to do that, you know, mm-hmm. like the, yep. you don't get a cookie for this. Right. And and Tywin, I think, is also mad, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Jamie accepts the Kingsguard position because he can't have children or, or, or own lands. So there's aspects about Jamie accepting that role that goes against what Tywin would have wanted for him. I think he wanted Jamie to sort of carry on House Lannister. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a big thing for Tywin is to spread the name. Like he wants yes. to... Like he doesn't even he doesn't even really care about like himself. The legacy he wants the yeah. legacy of the family. Yeah, right. and and then obviously we have Cersei, who um, a lot of attention seeking behaviors. Whether you think about her alcohol consumption or her ancestral relationship with Jamie, her sort of murderous tendencies, vindictive. Yeah, yeah, and then Tyrion, who is a drunken, philandering mess. Right. Oh yeah, he's a total mess. 
And even when he he does things like, you know, in the Battle of Blackwater and, you know, he had the idea for the fire, the special fire stuff. Um, Blackfire, <laughs> whatever it's called. <laughs> Green fire stuff. Um, <laughs> that essentially wins them the, the battle, right? When Stannis is coming in on the boats. Yeah, and, yeah. And Tyrion is doing this and hoping again to get recognition from Tywin and he gets nothing. That's right. That's another example of Tywin. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying, yeah, you don't know, you don't get a cookie for that. Like it's what you're nope. supposed to do. Huh. Right. And then and then as a result, you know, each of these three children then treat, especially Joffrey, um, but probably to a certain extent, Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen in different ways as well. You know, Joffrey is seen as this sort of monster, and Tyrion, probably just the way Tywin treats Tyrion, Tyrion treats Joffrey just sort of like with contempt. You know, slaps mm. him around, tells him he can do whatever he wants. No respect, even when Joffrey is king, right? Marcella essentially gets sold off to another Yeah, for sure. She country. goes to House Martell, doesn't she? Yes. And then Tommen, who's like objectively the most level-headed one, but also as the youngest child, gets no attention. Oh, yeah. So he's so forgotten about. He's that when completely he's, forgotten about. That when he's brought back to start doing the king role after Joffrey dies, yeah. you're like, you're like, who's who's that kid? Yeah. Like, they let you forget about him. Yeah, he's so forgotten that when Cersei plots to blow up the Sept, right, and, and let's remember, kills uh, Tommen's wife. <laughs> yeah. That she doesn't have, like, a guard or somebody like, oh, just keep an eye on Tommen while I murder half you of the, the, you know, <laughs> the town and also his wife. Like, somebody just, just keep an eye on him. Maybe keep the windows closed just in case. I don't know. No. Yeah. He's by himself when this happens. He sees everything go down, and very sadly, he takes his own life. So it's this ongoing pattern of, I don't get attention until I do something that that no one can but help to give attention to. Wow. I, you know, I'm thinking about, you're just talking about Joffrey, and, you know, everybody hates Joffrey, right? Yeah. But you just mentioned how Tyrion was treating him just like, kind of like Tywin would treat Tyrion with contempt and everything. Yeah. And it's like at one point, Joffrey was just a kid, you know? Oh, yeah. Man, he may have been a dirty little snot or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. But if you don't notice that, like you can't help him change and grow. Absolutely. And let's think about it from a parental perspective as well. You know, Joffrey's father is Jamie, but Jamie never assumes a fatherly role for Joffrey. Joffrey's fatherly role was filled by King Robert. Who like is never even I don't I don't think you ever even see him have an interaction with Joffrey unless it's like telling him to shut up or get out of here. Yeah. So it's just you know he doesn't have a positive male role model in his life. And it's funny too they they use uh, especially Cersei uses her children as a way to get attention as well. You know. Absolutely. It's not about like Joffrey being king. You know what I mean? It's about her being the king's mother yes, and then uh, passing that attention up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, look, dad, I'm the king's mother and I made this happen. Yes. And now we Lannisters will live on. Now, now, now the big question I have for house Lannister is talking about Tywin and like the aspects of parenting that can lead your children to desperately crying out for attention like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously this is a uh, a war-torn country, so Tywin's wife and these children's mother dies, you know, and 
from what we can tell, he's just like out in the War of Five Kings, or he's just out doing stuff for House Lannister, not really being a parental figure to these kids, probably not noticing some of the concerning behaviors that are starting to form. So suffice it to say, you know, it's really important for children to have uh, present parents in their life. And when parents are not present, these are some of the problems, you know, not necessarily to these extremes, but it's certainly possible that can happen. So the last thing on House Lannister, you know, the other sort of common motto that we hear, a Lannister always pays his or her debts. So, so Mike, if, if that was your family motto growing up, what I think is interesting about this is that there are some assumptions that I think would be natural to uh, to take away, some lessons that you would naturally take away, even as a kid, from this kind of a saying. So sure. It, assu- it assumes that you're going to have debts. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. Like, so you're going to you be in debt debts, to someone for sure. Yes. So it assumes you have debts. It assumes that you're going to be able to pay those debts, which is great, but it also assumes a certain amount of manipulation on your part, that you're accruing debts and then you're going to have to pay those debts off. And you got to figure it out because you always pay your debts. That's right. So <laughs> it, it, it creates this presumption of manipulation that no matter what problem I'm in, and we see this especially with Tyrion, that anytime he's in danger, he can just kind of offer money. He offers money to Bronn. You know, he offers money to, to people to yeah. save him from situations, basically just saying like, well, I'll double whatever you're being paid and then that should take care of it. And as a survival tactic, sure, great. But, you know, it starts to create problems when Cersei uh, is trying to run the country, essentially, but is running everyone into debt because they're out of money. Oh, and they don't even understand the concept of money. No, they don't even understand the, the possibility of being out of money. Huh. So, yeah, this is definitely like real world example. I'm just like thinking of like a uh, CEO office guy never around and, and, yeah. ki- and kids acting just just this way. Right. If you grow up in a well-off family, you're going to have certain expectations about what your life is supposed to be like. Yeah. And if, if your life doesn't fulfill that, that expectations, you're going to have some reactions to it. Hmm. It's kind of sad. It's kind of sad to think about, actually. It, it absolutely is. And that's, that's why, you know, when I work with um, patients, even who might be from families who are comfortable, it's important to validate that their problems, even if it, you know, even if they're you know, financially comfortable are still real problems. Like it's okay that they're scared about, you know, not getting a job or, or not getting into the right college. Like those right. are still very real anxieties. So yeah. Like you don't have to reach whatever, like if I was a millionaire, like yeah. my kid would never have to get there for me to love and respect him or her, right. you yeah. know, either of them. It's like, you know, if you're happy, good. Because because I'm the perfect parent. <laughs> no, I'm right, just right. But no, but to, to that point, like pain is subjective, right? We can't tell anybody that their pain is is any more or any less than anyone else's. If you're in therapy with me, your pain is is real and I'm going to validate it and we're going to treat it with an appropriate and a serious approach. Absolutely. All right. Now that we're done with House Lannister, let's move on to the house that got so close. Yeah, so close. To winning the Game of Thrones and then yet so far. And that is House Targaryen. Do you understand? I'm no ordinary woman. My dreams come true. I admire your passion. 
but in business I trust in logic, not passion. I'm sorry, little princess. I am not your little princess. I am Daenerys Stormborn of the blood of old Valyria, and I will take what is mine. With fire and blood, I will take it. Yes, my lady, but not with my ships. House Targaryen. And really, with the Targaryens, we only really have Daenerys. Basically. We yeah. have a little bit of Viserys from season one. And then technically, we have. Master Aemon. Ma- uh, well, we, have, we have Master Aemon. Yes, yeah. we do have Master Aemon. We have the Mad King, who we just see kind of clips of. And then we have Jon Snow, technically a Targaryen. That's true. He's technically. So we get to talk about him twice. Um, yeah, so I would say because we have so few Targaryens to talk about, let's let's piece off Jon Snow into this aspect of our conversation. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, no, now that I'm thinking <laughs> about it. No, because if we're talking about house, you know, house words, and this came up actually in the finale, the impact that house words and, and that sort of family motto have on the kids and have on the the sort of expectations that you have of yourself growing up, you know, is especially clear with Daenerys. So... House Targaryen, house words are fire and blood. Yikes. Pretty stark. Like, imagine that, like you said earlier, over your, you know, kitchen sink. Yeah. So it's obviously, it's in reference to the fire of uh, Targaryen dragons and the blood that was spilled in them, you know, coming into power. Oh, man. That's definitely a full-on ends justify the means, like, outlook. Yeah, so fire and blood, I mean, if you hear that growing up, man, there's definitely this sense of entitlement. Now, we could do a whole episode on Daenerys and how they treated her character over the course of this series, going from what it seemed like was a character who, let's just say, didn't want to kill kids. And then (laughs) then in season eight, after losing, granted, a lot of her support system became someone who well, at least was okay killing kids if it meant, you know, assuming the throne. Okay, you said granted there, like if there is some sort of like, you know, I kind of, there's no granted. <laughs> well, so I want to talk about that. Okay, so, okay. So one of the uh, sayings that was repeated in season eight, but also throughout the series was, a Targaryen alone in the world, I'm going to butcher this quote, but a Targaryen alone in the world is a sad and a, a scary or a dangerous thing. And when Daenerys was surrounded by Jorah and yeah. Missande and Grey Worm and, and Tyrion and, and, and Varys. And she was across the sea. And she was across the sea. But, and, and even Khal Drogo. When she was surrounded by these people, you know, obviously each of them are, are, have their benefits and drawbacks. But the more people she had around her, even if she went against their advice... There was a great clip from... I don't remember exactly what season Season two or three. She had... Um, Sir Barristan, who was a knight who uh, initially served under her father and then served under her while she was out, you know, liberating the, the slave cities, gave her this, this counsel when she was trying to decide what to do with the masters. I think at one point it was. She listened to him. She, she agreed to give him a trial and then all, all things went to hell. Oh, yeah. But she was a person who listened to counsel. And when she did that, she made... I think we can objectively say like wiser, gentler decisions. <laughs> but what's difficult is that when those wiser, gentler decisions are not uh, rewarded 
or respected. And then this gets into season eight when it, she started to feel like her mercy was being treated as a, as a sign of weakness that she decided to reverse course and she embraced more and more of the fire and blood aspect of her family. And you were talking about how she's basically alone as the last yeah. Targaryen. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just like sitting, sitting here picturing um, somebody that like lost all their family and they're totally on their own and how fire and blood as a saying for them would, would totally make sense. Like they would be so rejecting of, um, the world around them and like attacking things because now they, they can't, yeah. they can't trust anything because yeah. they're so alone, you know, or yeah. they, or they lost whatever they lost. And now they're, all they can do is strike back. Yeah, exactly. And, and to go personal for just a second, you know, Danny is not an only child, but you know, by the time her, uh, her brother dies in season one, I think she's still supposed to be pretty young. Let's just say she's what, 18, 19, Oh, yeah if, that, yeah. if that old. Right. So my daughter, uh, I only have one child. My daughter is uh, three and a half. So if we think of her as an only child. You know, the, the messaging that she gets from her parents dictates a lot of how she interacts with people that are not her family. Oh, sure. So growing up, you know, um, when she was out on the playground, you know, initially, I think kids have that sort of like stranger danger thing. Sure. Which is, you know, sort of essentially like self-protection. It's a good thing generally. But then they have to decide, well, do I approach people? Are people safe? Are people not safe? So uh, my wife and I gradually encouraged her to, to make friends, to introduce yourself to people, to ask people what their name is, all these sorts of social cues of like, be friendly, make friends, build support, build camaraderie, you know, especially uh, we're talking specifically on the playground, but in general too, at school, all this kind of stuff. What has happened is that now, and I'll give you an example just from today, I have my, my daughter on the playground, and just what happened, we were at the playground by ourselves, and there was a family, a, um, a mom and a dad, and a, what I think was essentially a baby, but they were like not even on the playground, they were just at a park bench like far away, and now my daughter's outlook is, can we go make friends with them? Can we, yeah. go, ask, can we go ask if they want to play? Yeah. And which I'm, you know, I'm... I'm it's one of my proudest things as a parent. It's like, thank God that that is how she feels. And, and my fear for her is that if, if this is how she goes forward, that, that she gets burned kind of in the way that Danny was, that she trusted people and eventually that trust was broken. Yeah. And, you know, now, now imagine if my family motto was fire and blood. Oh, gosh. And and that that was the thing I was telling my daughter when she went out onto the playground. Well, she would be, you know, picking up sticks or throwing rocks or, you know, and basically everything would be aggression, aggression, aggression. Get what I want. Get what I want. Get what I want. Sometimes that might be friends, but sometimes that might be, well, I want to play with that toy or I want to go on that swing. And I have no qualms about hurting you to get that thing, which is actually what Daenerys gets to. Wow. So these like mottos whether or not you know, like you're living in a motto, you know, your yes. the you, lessons that your family teaches you. Yeah. Yes. Whether or not you have it written above your kitchen sink or whatever, like you are, yeah. are, um, you are creating a certain sort of like lifestyle or belief system in, um, your children, I guess. And it just makes it like, how scary is it that, you know, we're parents or that we have that, we have that power. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, and I don't want to make too big a deal out of this, but when, when you think about the lessons you learned growing up, and maybe if, you know, maybe we'll have a segment uh, ongoing in our, um, 
in our show about, you know, questions that, that our listeners should take away from the episode. And a question that I might ask our listeners to consider is, what lessons did you learn from your family growing up? You know, did you learn, you know, hear me roar that you have to kind of get attention no matter what the situation is? Did you learn, you know, family duty honor? Did you learn fire and blood? Probably not. But, <laughs> but you know, and whatever that lesson was, how did that impact you? Because I think everyone has something that they learned, quote unquote, learned from their family, whether it was explicitly said or just implied through these kind of interactions that we're talking about. Right. And, you know, we're not all going to be almost anybody is not completely like House Tully, for example. No, of course not. No, the you shades know, are gray. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. The shades are gray there. We're not all family, honor and duty and this this like really great vision. You know, you might be family, honor and blood. <laughs> oh, sure. And, totally and, fair. And because as we can absolutely attest to is the fact that, you know, we all have issues and we all have things that we deal with. And um, one of the best things to do is to kind of, figure out where those things start with and, you know, work those out. And if that's how you grew up or, or whatever it is, and it, I don't know, it's always beneficial, but I can see everyone going into like how they were raised and kind of seeing, okay, I have duty for sure. I have family for sure. But then they do see fury. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a, that helps them like kind of be like, okay, you know, maybe that's something that I don't need to pass along. Mm -hmm. Right. And not that their parents are at like this huge fault. No, of course. Yeah. 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 So it, it's, you know, it's, it's both a big deal and something that we need to take with a grain of salt and that, yes, we have power, but family is not the only influence that children and people in general have. Right. Correct. All right. So on to the objective winners of the Game of Thrones, right? The main characters, that being House Stark. She knows a tame wolf is more used to her than a dead one. You want me to serve the woman who murdered my king, who butchered my men, who crippled my son? I want you to serve the realm. Tell the queen you will confess your vile treason. Tell your son to lay down his sword and proclaim Joffrey as the true heir. Cersei knows you as a man of honor. If you give her the peace she needs and promise to carry her secret to your grave, I believe she will allow you to take the black and live out your days on the wall with your brother and your bastard son. <laughs> you think my life is some precious thing to me? That I would trade my honor for a few more years of of war? You grew up with actors. And their craft, and you learnt it well. But I grew up with soldiers. I learned how to die a long time ago. Pity. House Dark. So House Stark's motto, and it, it's interesting, it's one of the few mottos that's not a boast or a threat. Uh-oh. It's just an acknowledgement of circumstance. Uh-oh. Is it winter is coming? I don't know these mottos. It is. It is winter is coming. Is it really? Yes. Oh, it wow. It is winter is coming. Yes. Nailed it. Um, And that, and yeah. So no matter what the circumstances that they're in, it is always true that winter is coming. Unless winter is here, but I guess it would still be coming at some point. It would still be coming. <laughs> Snow would still be coming down, right? Yeah. And even if winter's here, there's another winter coming around the corner. Exactly, right? yeah. 
So when I was reflecting on these house mottos a couple episodes ago, Mike, you and I talked about the world happiness rankings. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we talked about, what was it, Finland yeah, or, yeah. or Norway or was number one. And they're, they're also a cold, snowy, kind of morose culture. That's right. And we decided that it's because they're cold all the time. Right. And so because they're cold all the time, they're just like, eh, you know, it can't get much worse. So I guess I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. And and this really reminded me of how stark. It's not that they're so joyous and happy, but it's just that they have this recognition that maybe bad things are always going to happen. So we kind of have to find the joy in things when we can. We have to be resilient. We have to remember that even if things are good now, that that might not last. Oh, wow. You know, that that immediately rung a bell with me with anybody de- dealing with mental health issues is like, let's say depression, for instance, like yeah. depression is coming, you know, if you have an ongoing depression problem and the best way to battle that is to be prepared just the way they're like trying to be prepared for winter. Mm-hmm. And that's like a perfect analogy, actually. Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, it's not just the house motto, obviously, that makes the Stark children like objectively the most well-adjusted on the show. (laughs) It's also the parenting. Catelyn and Ned are, I think we can confidently say, probably the best parents on Game of Thrones. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they raise their children with this uh, responsibility, but also awareness that winter is coming. So that means be prepared. That means be resilient. That means you know, take care of each other because uh, a potentially dangerous situation is always around the corner. Yeah, the, the implications go everywhere, too, because that doesn't mm-hmm. that doesn't just say take care of your family, right? No, of course, yeah. That says, like, take care of others as well. Like, let's yeah. all be resilient because this thing is coming and we have to work together. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we look at, you know, when Ned is, is uh, beheaded at the end of season one yeah. and how each of those children, you know, react to that news, whether it's Sansa and Arya who literally uh, saw it happen or Rob who immediately goes to war. You know, John is often uh, off in the uh, Castle Black when it happens, but certainly he is affected by it. Absolutely. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, it shapes every all that shapes all of these children. Yeah. And then we have, you know, Brandon and Rickon and and even Theon to a certain extent who are wrapped up in the sort of aftermath of it. And all of them, you know, and and maybe we could debate this, but all of them, you know, if if your dad is executed by the king, I would say reacted pretty healthily to the situation. I'm I'm not going to disagree because the bad things that that came after the beheading mostly happened to them. Right. So I think we could say like not because of them. Yeah. Like the most concerning reaction is like Arya goes and becomes an assassin. Like (laughs) I'd be concerned if that was my daughter's reaction to my death. But (laughs) but let's take it. (laughs) Let's move that to like a real life example. Like sure. uh, uh, Somebody's dad dies and her daughter goes and uh, joins the becomes like a high powered attorney. You know, or something like that, like takes takes this like it doesn't take the pain, but it doesn't stop her from like seeing her dreams through. Or like to use the faceless man uh, analogy becomes like an actor. Yeah. Okay. So she <laughs> and becomes... just like channels, like channels, <laughs> channels the rage, channels the the emotion through something that gives them a goal, it gives them a direction. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think there's, 
even if you disagree with Brandon, uh, with Bran ending up on the throne, um, I do think we can acknowledge that the Stark clan, the Stark kids, as a result of their resilience, came through this this tragedy filled experience, you know, pretty well put together. I definitely agree. And and just for like last thing here is uh, for me, it, it all and I know it's not the only thing, but it really goes back to parenting. Catelyn and Eddard just gave them just had that sense of like, um, I don't know, like a log burning by a fire mm. and people drinking eggnog. They had that kind of sense, just like a general, sure. like real, a real family love going about them. And, you know, even though at one time Catelyn thought Eddard cheated on her, he actually didn't. So he was the the perfect man. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we could we could go in through every stark child and and the different things that happened to them and and how they were able to be resilient through those experiences sansa comes to mind for sure and i think that was it was a really positive ending for her in particular being able to show that you know despite the trauma that she experienced she was able to be a leader and and a wise one at that i mean that example just goes to every single one of them though you know i think so too Yeah. yeah and and certainly tragedy befell some of them rob rickon Again, Theon is is sort of an adopted Stark. We're not going to we're not going to talk about Rob. We're not talking about oh, Rob. Oh, okay, okay. I know he's he's your your dreamboat. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so kudos to Ned and Catelyn for raising kids who were very resilient, and even they though they knew winter was always coming, they were prepared for it. I would say most of the time. Good job, guys. <laughs> All right, Mike, so if it's okay with you, I'd like to just do our, our own Jon Snow section. I absolutely agree. We should definitely talk okay. just Jon Snow. <laughs> We're here to say goodbye to our brothers and sisters, to our fathers and mothers, to our friends, our fellow men and women who set aside their differences to fight together and die together so that others might live. Everyone in this world owes them a debt that can never be repaid. It is our duty and our honor to keep them alive in memory for those who come after us and those who come after them. For as long as men draw breath, they were the shields that guarded the realms of men. And we shall never see their light again. Jon Snow. That's that's Jon Snow, otherwise known as Aegon Targaryen. That's right, which is weird to think about. It is. Um, and, and it's also weird in the sense that, like, that loose end was barely addressed. But I, uh, we can't talk about I season know, eight. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, it's okay. So anyway, Jon Snow was raised under the the Stark mentality, winter is coming. He definitely embodied that. He's like a... <laughs> time, time out. Uh, Man, that was such a bombshell with the him being Aegon Targaryen. And they yes. just didn't talk about it anymore. I know, oh Mike. I know. We have so many problems with it, but that's well, that's not our show. We can't. Okay. Like, we can't do that. Okay. <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> we don't have time. Yeah. Okay. He actually, you know, he is a Stark. You know, he is a son of a Stark. 
So he's still part of the family. But um, he's really like an emo, like he almost perfectly <laughs> embodies winter is coming. He's just like, oh, man, winter, winter is coming. Yeah, he's got his fingernails. Uh, he's painting them oh, up. Oh, man. He's got a clove cigarette. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like that, that one gif of him in the snow, just like blowing by his face and him just looking sad is perfect Jon Snow. <laughs> but then we have this other secret side of him where he is also a Targaryen. What a bombshell. And it is. And I mean that for like a person. No, 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 absolutely. Because it, we, we can't even imagine what that must be like to essentially have this identity crisis in the middle of a uh, actual crisis. You know, he found this out like within a day of the, the Night King's army coming to essentially kill them all. Right. right? Yeah. So I really, I worry about John, right? He's mm -hmm. like the embodiment in this show or the books of good. Like pure good really never does anything that goes against his own beliefs of what is true and right. He doesn't waver. I wonder like where for him does that come from? Because like you said, man, he's basically been treated like dirt most of his life. He grew up like he was like the family. Now, okay, the Stark home was great. But like we said, Catelyn... Treated him very badly, right? Like it, it was the least great for him. Exactly. Like he was almost like the family dog, even, you know, like he couldn't come sit at the dinner table and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I don't really think he like outwardly like complained, but that's definitely where his emoness came from to begin right. with, right? But then right yes. as he's coming into his own as a man, right? And he's growing up and his body is getting through with changing and all those sorts of things, uh, he gets sent to his body's changing. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he went through puberty. That's yeah, what I true. mean. Yeah. Is like, yeah, he, yeah. God, I hate you. It's a difficult time for him. He, he, I'm just saying that like he's, he's forming into the person he's going to be. Yes. And then he volunteers to go to the wall, right? The Night's Watch. Yes. Where everybody knows you're going to go there. And, and most of the people that are there are like, People that uh, got sentenced to be there for whatever theft or whatever it is that they did in lieu of like having their hand cut off or being killed or whatever. Right. But he, he goes from this like not super awesome place for him because of like the way he's treated by Catelyn to a place where he's never going to be able to have kids. And he basically knows that his future is done with. He's going to get there and that's the rest of his life. Still, though, his reasonings for doing this are good and true and they don't waver and he gets there and he just seems like an anomaly to me, like with all these things going on around him. So that takes it to the point of, we talked a lot about how parenting and other effects around the world can, can sort of create these dynamics that we live in. But then you have like a Jon Snow who it didn't really matter what happened around him and he was just going to be this person always. So I, I, I don't know. I'm just wondering like, how does somebody kind of escape whatever dynamic they're in to, to be that person, I guess. Yeah. So if we think about, you know, if we had to make a, a house motto just for Jon Snow, right? The lesson that he learned as a child, you know, essentially unwanted, unwanted, but undaunted might be something like that, right. where it's like nobody wants him. He was not wanted um, by his own family. Ooh, unwavering, because I said never wavered. 
Uh, un- unwanted but unwavering. Yes, yes. very nice. <laughs> and but 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 that reality doesn't stop him from continuing to move towards his goals. And I think one of the most fascinating sort of character progressions was after Jon Snow dies and comes back to life. Yep. Right. He's he's kind of a different guy. You think? I I, I do a little bit. Okay. He he becomes a little bit more reckless. Yeah, you're probably right. He's a little he's a little less like um, emo. Actually, he's a little less emo and more like yeah. and more direct. Well, direct, but also you know I think especially in the Battle of the Bastards, you know Sansa was was uh, wisely counseling him to be patient, to wait, don't go rushing into it. This is this is what Ramsay Bolton wants, and John didn't do that. Because, you know, I guess if you die, you kind of just think like, well, what's the worst going to happen? I'm going to die again. Well, that wasn't so bad the first time. <laughs> but like that kind of experience can really change your your perception on your own self-worth, which already probably wasn't great. Right. So, so yeah, so he, he becomes this sort of different person and then, you know, does fall in love again. So now he is wanted, but then it's he's wanted by his aunt. Oh, gosh. Yeah, but that's okay because they're Targaryens. Well, it's not okay for him though. She's fine with it. Yeah, he struggles. She with She doesn't it. care. He, well, not he. He refuses it. Yeah. He says he loves her and he's she's his queen. But he won't be intimate with her. He doesn't. He doesn't. You know, doesn't have a relationship with her. He's just his queen, and that's it. So even even when he is wanted, he can't accept that. So I think he's just such a fascinating character study. And then obviously he ends up having to kill Danny. Yeah, gosh. Um, for the better of the realm. Because he did you know? the right thing, you know? He 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 made that decision despite himself. Yeah. And even he's still questioning if it was the right thing. And right. he will probably do that forever. So uh, I'm just wondering, from your experience working with people who live in these sorts of dynamics, what's the difference between someone who lives in Jon Snow's upbringing and dynamic going from being like a Jon Snow, true and good and unwavering, to the opposite of that, which I feel like could happen in the exact same circumstances. Mm. Could could turn someone down the wrong path and doing the wrong things and creating a, a bad life for themselves. Like, where where's the divergence there? So it's really interesting. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a big jump, but this has just been on the top of my mind. Maybe it's because of patients I'm working with. And it's going to feel like a, a, a big jump, but just try to follow me here. So I've worked with a lot of patients who are in the LGBTQ community. Growing up, you know, they, they have different experiences that, you know, I would say it varies on when they recognize who they are. But when they do, when that recognition is apparent, whether it happens to them when they're very young, as it does happen for some people... Or whether it happens to them, you know, I, I've had people where that happens in their, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. Mm. And that recognition, how that um, recognition is accepted by the people around them makes such a big difference in how they proceed through that, whether we think of it as a transition or just sort of self-acceptance phase of their life. Mm. And, you know, John's uh, not gay or anything like that. But for people who go through that transition of, I saw myself one way, now I see myself a different way. Um, Is everyone around me going to accept that or reject that or ignore that? That has such a huge impact on on how you see yourself and, and what you see yourself to be capable of, capable of love, capable of acceptance, capable of finding work and passion, that if if you're rejected, 
in some ways as huh. John is, right? That that can just be devastating in in terms of you know feeling like you can get the things that you want in life. It, yeah, it's like he he went from a place where there was some rejection happening, and then he did make a he made a choice to go be a night's watchman, and then he he's no longer seeing himself as you know, someone who will never be as a, a lord. bastard, yeah, right. as a bastard, yeah, yeah, yeah. someone who'll never yeah. be a lord, and all those other right. things. Now he's a man of the Night's Watch. He's a Lord Commander. Yeah, even more so. And now, like his, yeah, yeah, the purpose behind that, like he can, he can forget all that other stuff, right? Because yes. now he has this whole different future ahead of him. Yes. And in his mind, whether or not I think the Night's Watch seems depressing or not, <laughs> doesn't <laughs> but, matter. But. But to my to the, to that transition, like yes, he becomes Lord Commander, but then he is rejected in the strongest possible way. He's murdered. Yeah, but that's because. He, but that doesn't matter because he did the, the right the because, thing. <laughs> right, but the because doesn't matter because people do the right thing when they when they come out and they and they share. You know, I'm gay or I'm I'm lesbian or I'm bi or I'm whatever. That is the right thing for them to do. But if that is is rejected or if that is if they're mistreated or abused as a result of that. It doesn't matter that it was the right thing. Right. They're going to react to how they were accepted or not. Right. And there's really no way to, you know, bundle that up to sound good because right. he got killed. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, yeah. then that was it for him. His rejection was the last thing he yeah. felt. And how can we, you know, we cannot be surprised that John doesn't want the throne because the throne represents the Lord commandership. It's, oh, if I'm, if I'm at the top, like, People are just going to want to knock me off, and I don't want to be it there again. Yeah. Even if he thinks he's capable of it. Yeah. He's like, being dead is really bad. I don't like it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I hope people were okay with that that comparison. Um, you know, I realized I jumped from uh, fictional to to non-fictional, but I, I just think it's that that recognition, and I'm sure we're going to talk about LGBTQ issues uh, more in future episodes. But that was at the top of my mind, and I just wanted to to hopefully make that com that favorable comparison in in some ways. Okay, that's all for the Game of Thrones. And now we got to do our ratings. We're going to try to do some yes or no. We're going to try to... Yeah, no, they are totally going to do ratings. All right, we're going to yeah. try to do ratings. And if you haven't listened to the show before, Ryan and I rate every week on a scale of one to five. Ryan rates one to five for accuracy of the portrayal. And I rate one to five on the critic scale. Ryan, what are we looking at? So I just want to be clear here on what I'm ranking, what I'm rating, because... That's why you know, I stumbled over is, that. Thank you. <laughs> so this is because this we're, we're talking about Westeros, a fictional place where, uh, you know, people have joked that it's like the 1300s or the 1200s when, you know, mental health was not something that was even uh, people were understanding or aware of. Yeah, right? my sister is always like, yeah, this is back in the medieval times. And I'm like, no, yeah. it's not. It's not in the medieval Just times. Just with dragons it's and magic. It's in another yeah, universe. Fine. It doesn't Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that aside, you know, what I want to rank is the depiction of how different families can respond to the expectations that are put upon them. And from that perspective, I think Game of Thrones does a really good job showing the different ways uh, children and families can respond and react to the expectations you know, of parents or just of the family in general. So from that end, you know, it's not it's not perfect because there are no dragons and magic and things like that or princes that were promised. So I can't give it a five uh, just because I want to acknowledge that this is fictional. 
So uh, out of five sigils, because I love the sigil word, you know, instead of a, a coat of arms, but I want to give it a four because if you look at these different families, um, there is a range of, uh, of both appropriate and unhealthy reactions to family expectations. And I do want people to take that away from our episode today. All right. All right. Okay. So I'm going to throw a little wrench in your gears here. And I, you don't have to uh, rate or anything, but I'm wondering, who do you think was the most well-adjusted character and then the most, the, or the opposite of that, not well-adjusted character? Interesting. Okay. Um, I would have to say that the most well-adjusted character was Sansa. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. And the least well-adjusted character... Oh man, so many options. <laughs> um, well, you know what? It's actually not that hard. I'm just going to say Ramsey Bolton, who we didn't talk about, but for obvious reasons was not very well adjusted. Oh gosh, yeah, terrible. Yeah, Ramsey for sure. Yeah, you win on that one. I'm going to I'm just going to challenge your most well adjusted with Shireen. Uh, sure. Yeah, she was, uh, yeah, I guess I just wanted to focus on characters that had a little more screen <laughs> no, time, was... but yes, no, no, Shireen is, is, a, is a lovely character <laughs> and, uh, couldn't have been sadder for how she yeah. met her end. Yeah. All right. So I've got to rate this for the critic scale. All right. So I'm doing one out of five torments. Torment Giants Bane, of course. Because Shout I out. don't think that I need to explain why. Okay. So... You know what? If you had stopped me at the end of season seven, even. Sure. I would have said five, straight up five, going through the oh, roof. No. How much damage does season eight do? How much damage? How much damage did it do to your view of the show? Yeah. Okay. Be <laughs> this is hard to say. Season eight. Okay. I'm going to have to say season eight is like the finale of Sopranos, but for a whole season. Wow. Okay. Strong words. Uh, some people like the finale of, of, of Sopranos, but that's and fine. Some people like this season. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's fair. I did not, yeah. unfortunately, well, even though I wanted to, but it was so bad that it ruined so much for me that I'm going to have to take Game of Thrones as a whole to a 3.5. Whoa, knocked it down a whole point and a half. Point and wow. a half. That's how bad. That's because I'm angry right now. Come back again. That's what, that's what you get, Benny Off and Weiss. That's right. That's right. Okay, all right. So, everyone, you can send me hate mail. That's fine. But we do have to get out of here for the day. But remember to stick around for Ryan's... What are they? Oh, yeah. For Ryan's closing... Closing thoughts. Yeah. For Ryan's closing thoughts. But first, we need to thank Kevin McLeod. Uh, Kevin does all of our music for the show. You can find him and his royalty-free music at incompetech.com. Ryan, I'll see you next week. How do we end this show? <laughs> Uh, I was going to hum the, the theme song, but that's probably right protected. Uh, we end it by saying thanks for listening to our long, long, long episode. Thanks for listening to this incredibly long podcast. And now for some closing thoughts on the HBO series Game of Thrones. First of all, obviously this is a crazy fantasy show, and even though the mental health relevant issues we discussed today may have been a stretch, there are still useful ideas for parents and families to learn from. As a parent, it is important to think about not only the lessons you are directly teaching your children, but also indirectly. 
context is important, so make sure the lessons being taught are being received in the way you want them to, and don't just assume children will figure it out effectively. Like several of the families in Game of Thrones, having one or both parents be absent due to whatever circumstances can have a huge impact on the lessons being learned in the family. Are the children fighting for attention, like the Baratheons or Lannisters, or are they resilient and level-headed like the Starks? These are good questions to ask if you're concerned about the behavior or emotional difficulties that children might be experiencing. Finally, it's my perspective that no matter what the family motto or childhood experiences are, we are not destined to become mad kings or queens, or destined to become anything for that matter. We do have a choice in how we are influenced by our family, for better or worse. So consider the support you seek out, and if your support system dwindles like Danny's does, don't take that for granted. Build a new one. Thank you so much for listening to our show. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at PopPsych101. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. PopPsych101 is on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. From Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.